This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 512 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chief Roger Shai. Now, a recurring theme on this podcast is some of the leadership voids, some of the lack of training in our departments, and it was absolutely refreshing to hear from a police chief who has been part of obviously a team of very progressive leaders that has resulted in the bar being set very high and maintained high all the way through the ranks. So we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into law enforcement, some of the progressive changes that were made, their amazing incentive on the strength and conditioning side, the application of the echelon front principles, and so many more areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 500 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Roger Shai. Enjoy. Roger, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to reach out and uh, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So we are in Pocatello, Idaho, which is uh, called the Gate City. We are right off the I-15 corridor, about two and a half hours north of Salt Lake City. Beautiful. All right. Well, I love to start chronologically at the very beginning. Um, so tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings, that kind of thing. Sure. So I was born and raised uh, pretty much down in uh, East County, San Diego. Uh, my uh, my dad was in sales his, pretty much his whole life. Um, he's retired now. And my mom kind of did sales. She worked at uh, she worked at a couple hospitals. Uh, she did stay at home mom for a little bit, uh, you know, bounce back and forth between that stuff. And, uh, we ended up in Idaho. I relocated up here in 1993 and my brother, my brother kind of brought us up to this neck of the woods. Cool. Now I've had a guest, a couple of guests that have had parents in sales before with you, we kind of got a unique perspective because you're, you know, wearing the chief's badge now. Um, yeah. Did you ever take any of his lens as a salesperson? The reason I ask is I had someone on who um, branding is what he does, does up in Montreal and Canada. And I asked him about, you know, branding the fire service, branding law enforcement. So in discussions as you've risen through the, the ladder, has there been any cross-pollination with what he used in the sales world to, to, to kind of educate the public in law enforcement? Sure. Yeah. My dad was a pretty big influence in my life. He, uh, uh, I always looked up to him and how he did things, how he interacted with people. And, and so he actually sold Bluebird Wonder Lodges 
So down at Holland Motorhomes down in San Diego, California. And so a Bluebird Wonder Lodge is like the Taj Mahal of motorhomes. So he, he interacted with people like Michael Jackson's family, Bruce Willis, Sybil Shepherd. They sold to all those people, Tom Cruise. And so he had a pretty high end clientele. So I watched how he interacted with people. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, to circle, make things full circle with kind of some of the things we're doing with Echelon Front is, is they talk about building relationships with people. So being a salesman and being a salesman at that level, it was all about building relationships with people. And I, I think that that really crossed over to to what I'm doing today and and how I am with people. And so just watching that dynamic of it, treating people good. So Beautiful. Well, I'm looking at you now. Obviously, you're in good shape. I think you have to to do the muster as well. <laughs> if you show up, that is, between the, the PT and the jiu-jitsu. So when you were young, tell me about your athletics. Were you playing sports? Were you just naturally active? Yeah, I was I was very active. You know, as a as a kid growing up, I was always out playing, you know, getting into mischief as a as a youngster, right? Dirt clod fights with my friends and you know, playing army, stuff like that. Um and then as I progressed, I, I got into uh, a few things. I got into martial arts at about 14. Uh, I started studying martial arts at the American Colleges of Karate down in uh, San Diego, down in El Cajon. And then I got into wrestling. I wrestled uh, throughout high school and I, uh, I swam. Uh, I grew up on the beach, grew up surfing, uh, you know, being outdoors a lot with with my friends. And I mean, San Diego was great to grow up and there was a lot of outdoor things to do. So I was skiing, surfing. Um, if there was snow in the mountains, we were up there. If there was good waves, we were out surfing. But wrestling, weightlifting, uh, martial arts. So I was all I was always active doing something. Now, which uh, martial arts did you start with, and then what was the evolution as far as different styles? Yeah, so I started off in um, the American Colleges of Karate does Amkajitsu, which is kind of a, a blend. So it's an eclectic type of martial art. We did we did a lot of judo, jujitsu. We did some jujitsu before jujitsu was a thing. Um, we did uh, had a lot of joint locks. So there was mixed with some aikido. We did uh, arnis, escrima, some kale, and um, so I I grew up in that where we didn't really have one one significant style. It was more of Hey, we're gonna we're gonna work on judo tonight. We're gonna work on jujitsu tonight. We're gonna work on joint locks tonight. So we're doing aikido. Um, we're working on strikes tonight. And then um, and when I moved to Idaho, I I got hooked up with a guy by the name of Glenn Boudry, and we did a lot of um, muay thai, uh, and we did a lot of it was called shoot fighting back before you know jujitsu was a thing. So we did some shoot fighting there. Uh, I helped train a guy to go down and fight with the dog brothers. So we were doing some full contact stick fighting. Uh, so I wasn't, you know, I wouldn't do that now, but I was in my twenties. So <laughs> we were, we were doing a lot of that stuff. And we had a kids, we had a kids Taekwondo class that we taught up here when we were both officers. So, um, and then I, you know, we got into teaching defensive tactics and I, that's, I'm still teaching defensive tactics here. And, Got, I've gotten to work with great people like Hoist Gracie, Justin Wade from uh, LAPD, Tim Collins uh, for, down from LAPD, who's come up here and, and, and trained with us. So, 
Beautiful. Well, I want to definitely explore that when we get to that point. Um, cause I mean, that's a, obviously, you know, open the can of worms. I think partly of what we're seeing at the moment. Um, what about career aspirations when you were at school age? Were you always dreaming of law enforcement or was there something else? Yeah. You know, I got pictures of me uh, when I was a little kid driving around my, uh, my house on this electric tricycle thing that you know with a cop helmet on and i i kind of always looked to my brother too he got into law enforcement with the riverside county sheriff's department so i looked up to him quite a bit and you know he was an influence in my life too and saw what he was doing and kind of knew what i always wanted to do and uh when i was uh, right after i got out of high school i i joined the san Diego county sheriff's department as an explorer down there and went through an explorer academy and Got, got involved with that and a lot of training down in, in, in there. And I was working two nights pretty much at the sheriff's department, working a shift, um, riding with another deputy and then throwing freight at a grocery store. So so with that, I just had uh, another guest, Keith Notek, who ended up um, you know finishing his career in California as well. And he went through the Huntington Beach Explorer program. And when we look at things like diversity and asked him this, the same question, you know, I think most of us, if we're blatantly honest, know that a lot of agencies will just go out and pick X amount of, you know, like going to a grocery store, X amount of these, X amount of that, whatever you're trying to fill to make up the numbers. And obviously there's some, you know, chance there'll be some great candidates in there and there'll be some terrible ones. That's not how we test normally and we'll overlook some people that are probably better qualified. The answer to me with this diversity issue is that there are absolutely a parts of many, many cities and counties that are underrepresented. And I think it's a barrier to entry. It's easier to go to fire school if, you know, your parents can afford to help you when you're 18. That's different if you're, you know, in a, in a very poor neighborhood, maybe one parent and that parent's working all the time. So the mentorship programs that I've seen here in Ocala, I think are the solution to that. And obviously the explorers are, are you know, a branch of that as well. So tell me about your mentorship. What, what, how did that factor in to taking a school child and actually setting you up for success on the career that you end up cho- uh, choosing? Yeah. So when I got involved with that, I had some pretty good mentors down there. Uh, Ronnie Hudson was, he was, uh, over our Explorer post down in San Diego County and, you know, he provided training, guidance, leadership, and the great people like Dave Weldon, who actually ended up, uh, retiring here just recently as a, helicopter pilot. He was an Astria pilot down in um, San Diego County. I rode with him quite a bit, learned learned a ton from him. And uh, just people like that at the Santee Station uh, who helped form a young me in, in, a, in a, you know, who I am today. That's kind of that foundation. I believe in, in you know, building your house upon a rock and, and, and what a great place to do that with great training and great people that, that took the time to, to take a an 18 year old kid and kind of put him under your wing and teach him things and be patient and understanding and show me how to, you know, be the, be a good officer and a good person. So, and, and the cool thing about that is, um, uh, this month we're starting one, we're starting a cadet program up here. We're going with public safety cadets and we're starting a program here. We're partnering with school district 25 with their first responder academy and we're gonna we're gonna start our own cadet program so beautiful and what's that gonna look like um probably 15 or 16 and, and up and we're gonna start off with about 10 kids uh 10 young young adults um and they go all the way to 20 years old and we'll give them some training and uh 
they'll have a uniform. They'll be able to go out and do some limited things. So I, I kind of want to use that as a feeder program into our police department and a good, a good experience for some people to, to get some training and, you know, get their toes a little bit wet to see if, if this is something that, you know, I want, I'm interested in and pursuing a career in, or maybe, you know, well, it gives me a better understanding, but maybe I don't want to go down that road. Maybe they want to be a fireman or a dispatcher, or maybe, maybe they're not interested in, in what this is at all, but it gives them an opportunity to do that. And, you know, we, we've hired some people here that didn't work out because it wasn't what they thought it was. So it, I think that that's the same with, with fire, with EMS, with anything first responder type, you know, people get involved in it and it's not what they see on TV or the movies or what they hear about. It's a lot different. So I think this is, it will be a good program. It'll, it'll, it'll go hand in hand with our mission statement of community commitment. And we'll be able to, uh, you know, get out there and be more involved with our community. And we're always looking for opportunities to be more involved in our community. And is this going to be something where there's kind of zero barrier to entry as far as costs? So as long as they can show up, the kids will be able to have it. Because that's what I see, obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, is an issue with, you know, fire school or police academy and these mentorship programs here. They have scholarships that get them into school. You know, they have to obviously win them. And then there's many, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm choking on a biscuit. Um, there's many opportunities after school to, you know, there's employers looking for on the other end. So it's an incredible channel for anyone, regardless of, you know, where they found themselves born to enter into our professions. If there if there's stumbling blocks, we will find a way. It, it it won't matter. We'll find a way for them to get it done. So beautiful. All right. Well, then back to you know you're you're in the Explorer program. Walk me through from there going to the the actual police academy. Yeah. So I uh, I worked. I did that for three years and uh, relocated. I put my application in a bunch of agencies down there, and it was just you know it was it was in the early 90s. So it was highly competitive. A lot of people were trying to get in. Uh, I didn't have any luck down there. So I had applied for Pocatel Police Department uh, and I relocated. Actually, at 20 years old, I bought a house and moved up here and was trying to get a job up here. Once again, highly competitive. And I ended up working in the jail as a reserve for a year for free. And uh, I was on the list and I was, the, it was a two year list at the time. And I was the last one they hired off that list. I was number 50 and I was the last one they hired on, on, on that list. So I got hired, hired up here in um, January, January 16th of 1995 is when I started for Pocatel Police Department. Now you mentioned about your brother working for Riverside. What I remember, please correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of agencies in California, you had to go to corrections first before you could then become a deputy on the streets. Um, you know, tell me if, if that's the case in California. And if so, you know, what's your opinion of that system? And I'm, and I'm not, <laughs> it's not a loaded question. I'm just curious. You know, um, I, I got, I worked in the jail. I learned a lot in the jail. I think, I think you learn how to communicate in there because it's, you're in there with, and you're outnumbered, right? You're, you got to treat people with, with dignity and respect. And, and it was kind of, kind of interesting that you bring that up. We had an incident happen up here at the Banner County jail where there was an inmate that actually attacked a female deputy and had her, uh, in a chokehold and the other inmates came over and helped her out. 
all because back to what we talked about earlier about the relationship that she had built with those inmates and treated them with respect and cared about them and, you know, and treated them the right way. And I think that that's an important tool that you, you learn uh, in the jail. Now, the jail is not for everybody. So it's it, I don't think it should be something that uh, everybody should go through. But if you're up here, you can be 18 years old and work in the jail. I think it's a good experience for people to uh get some training, get some understanding of how the criminal justice system works. It, it, it helped me because I was able to answer questions about to people. It's like, if I'm taken to jail for something like, Hey, what's going to happen? I've never been to jail before. Well, here's what's going to happen when you get in here. This is the process. And I was able to explain the process to them a little bit better. So it kind of helped help with my foundation. Uh, but I, like I said, I don't think it's for everybody because some people go to the jail. They love it. They stay there their whole career, but some people hate it. Um, and can't wait to get out uh, and work patrol. So I think it just uh, on an individual basis, depending on where you're at in your career. Yeah, it's interesting. Thank you. Um, so with the bar set when you walked, you know, into your department, um, what was the uh, the expectation as far as physical fitness, and also what was the the DTAC training at that point? So uh, I've always been big into physical fitness. Um, when I went to the academy, I was one of the ones that got the possible club for push-ups, sit-ups with the with the, the PRT test that we had to take. Um, I've always been very competitive, and it's like I, you know, I I, I want to do the best in everything I, I I do and everything I set my mind to. So I was very driven um, on on that, and so I was able to to get the possible club and get a perfect score on on the physical fitness test, and um, so. Uh, the defensive tactics, I mean, it was pretty basic. We had, we did some stand up, not a lot of stuff on the ground. That was always kind of a, a hole, um, in, in our program. Weapons retention was, was big. Um, I still remember my, my defensive tactics instructors and my, and my wep- my weapons retention instructor from the Academy. And it, it was a decent program. Um, and to, to what it is today and it, it, because of those instructors, it made me interested in becoming an instructor myself in, in that area. So we've, we've progressed pretty good in the state of Idaho. And now we're, um, I, I would say we have one of the, the, the better programs in the country. Um, so now with, um, once you start getting on the street, is there an annual standard for the fitness? No. Okay. And, and, no. So we'll get fast forwarding to today. What are some of the challenges that you see? It seems to be a rarity when you find a department that does hold people to a standard. And when you, you know, speak to the first, uh, excuse me, the special operations community, even the lifeguard community, they're amazed slash appalled that we're not held to an annual standard like, you know, they are and then we should be. So, you know, through that lens, before we kind of move forward, what are some of the barriers that you've seen in your whole career um, for setting a standard for a firefighter or a police officer to, to have to meet every year to show that they can do their job? Culture. I, I think that that's the it's amazing what some people get complacent about. And when they get complacent about their their physical fitness, you know, it, it seems like they get complacent about other things, too. But I have a there's a saying that they have up the wall at our post Academy over Meridian says, once you choose law enforcement, you lose the right to be unfit. And I, I firmly believe that I'm 49 years old and I, I work out with the Idaho state university football team. And, 
those guys think I'm a little crazy. And so, but uh, that's, uh, we have a great weight room here, a well, a wellness room, right? Um, but we have a lot of good equipment. We've got, um, a good facility here. We, we've changed a lot of things. We actually give incentives for our physical fitness program and you can, you can take a lot of different tests. You can do the standard PRT test now and where we progressed you, there's three row tests you can take. You can do the 500 meter, you can do the 2000 or you can do the four minute and there's progressive charts that we've, um, we've actually, uh, mimicked from dps down in texas we've had those guys come up here and train our physical fitness instructors so we offer an incentive now and it's actually part of your promotional packet if you want to get promoted here it's part of what's called the career path and uh, your ability to promote is based 20 points of that is based off your your physical fitness I've never heard that before when it comes to promotion. That's, that's, that's amazing. Do you know where, where the incentive element and that were, were born? Like how far back that goes? Uh, yeah, I made it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. So, so how many years ago? And how, how many years ago was it, was it initiated? And then tell me about the resistance to it, if any. Yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, we, we initiated it and, you know, like with anything, co- cops, firemen, EMS, they hate two things. They hate the status quo and they hate change, right? So you have your, your you know, it's like, oh, what do we got to do? We got to take this PT test, right? There was a little bit of grumbling, but now everybody knows what it is. They they know what the career path is going into it. And we, we base our career path off five things, um, education and training, your department involvement, uh, your firearms, physical fitness, and our leadership development program. Each one of those sections worth 20 points. So if you if, if you want to get promoted and you're a competitive person and you got some dude who doesn't is not in shape and gets a low score on the test and only gets like maybe five points in that section and you get somebody who's in shape and gets 20 points in that section, man, that's a that's a big gap to overcome. So. Yeah, and what about the union? Uh, and I always sound like I'm union bashing. I'm just just being real. I've I've been in departments where we've had you know union support, and I've been in departments where the wellness initiative was vehemently opposed. So, in your department, did you have support? Yeah, you know, our union actually helped help create this career path. What we do is we sit down every September and we go over our career path on any adjustments that we need to make as well as our personal administration rules and I get feedback from the union. And and here's the thing, if it's 80% of what I want, I'll add it. It's, you know, working with them to get this. We also have a, a yearly incentive. So twice a year we can take a PT test, uh, one of the, the department PT tests, any one of the four that I talked about, and you can get up to 350 bucks twice a year. So not only can you get a little bit of money in your pocket, but you could get more money in your pocket if you get promoted. And that affects, of course, your retirement and your your 401k uh, match and and your and your paycheck. So uh, it's we've made an an incentive here to uh, to to do physical fitness, to be involved. We also give our guys uh, three hours a week, our guys and gals, three hours a week to work out on duty if manpower permits. So 
not only can you, uh, and that's negotiated into our contract, and I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I, w- I was our union president for a couple of years. I was our FOP president for several years. So that that's kind of given me a good foundation to work with those guys. And uh, and those are all things that, that we do here. We've got, a like I said, a great facility to, to be physically fit. And and we, we also offer um, our defensive tactics. We do uh, – uh, like we do practice shoots, but we also do defensive tactics practice days too, where guys can come in and roll with our instructors and and get that experience as well. And that's always a, a good workout for them too. So we offer a lot of different programs for them to 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 be fit, not just physically fit, but you know, uh, skills fit too. So let me ask you this uh, as a you know, side note. Then, when you do contract negotiations, are they resolved relatively quickly and the reason i ask that where there's not good communication between you know union administration i've seen it drag on for years and it's nauseating because to me the fact that a room of grown-ups can't just fucking make a decision and costs all this union money drives me up the wall and all these you know men and women are waiting for their raises or whatever um so so have you have you been able to streamline that because of the relationships that you built yeah, you know, some years are better than others. Um, you know, this year was fairly quick. We we got a, a, a good contract. We got a we actually did a four year contract with a, a progressive step and uh, and cost of living increase or a pay adjustment, however you want to call that. Uh, and and you know, we worked well with them. We communicated well with them. We were able to find some good middle ground and and be able to get the end state, you know, we talk about the end state a lot. Like what, what's your end state here? Well, if you want a 20% raise, doesn't matter if it's over three years or four years, right? And are we going to really fuss over a couple of percent for one year when the end state's there? And if there's always, let's say there's some extra revenue source that comes into our city, let's say Amazon decides to move in here or something that, that dumps a bunch of money into the tax base, and obviously, we, we want to reduce our taxes to our citizens. But if there's some extra there, I'm one that's going to go to my mayor and say, hey, boss, there's some extra money here. Is there a way we can maybe reopen the contract and give these guys some extra? So that they, they know I'm going to do that. If, if there's a way to get them to take care of, of the people that work here, whether it's dispatchers or you know, uh, our records clerks or our, our sworn officers, they know I'm, they know I'm going to go to bat for them and do that. And I think having, having that knowledge, uh, and, and my actions showing that when I go to council meetings that that's helped out with negotiations too. They know that it's just not just because it's negotiated that I'm not always going to go in there and try to find a way I'm like a gnat at a barbecue a lot of times, right? But like just, Get, yeah, take care of it. And so I'm, I, I'm persistent on things. So when you hear of agencies, their administration, you know, the, the chief level personnel and unions don't get on well, don't communicate well, what advice would you give those agencies to, to be able to grow from that? Yeah. You know, what, where is your common ground? You know, and at the end of the day, I think that it, an administration and a police department and the line staff want the same thing, right? Nobody wants to be like, yeah, I want, I, I don't want my guys to get paid well, right? Because if, if it's, it's like Jocko talks about, it's cover move. If they win, then I win. And if I've got, you know, 
if I've got happy officers that are out there or happy dispatchers, they're going to provide good, good service to the community. If they're disgruntled and upset and their morale's low, that's going to reflect in their work product. So I think that if you find the middle ground of where, where you can, you know, get things and, and a lot of it is egos, right? I think egos kill us, especially in the first responder world. Um, if everyone can walk in and check their ego at the door and, try to look at things from other people's perspective rather than their perspective. I think that would help out too. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'd love to kind of walk through some of the specialty units that you had. I think the first one would be SWAT. So let's kind of explore that. So you're already a, you know, a, a tactical athlete, you know, you're held to a certain standard when you walk through the door, what, you know, what expectations and at what level were, was that expectation set to enter your department SWAT team? Yeah, so we've always had a physical fitness standard for our SWAT team. They do have to pass a physical fitness test once a year. Um, so they're they're required to do that. Uh, and that's always was something I was drawn to. Uh, people I looked up to in the department were on the team. And it was always something I wanted to do. So I got on the team pretty early on in my career. It was probably 97, 98 when I got on um, on our tactical team. So, um, and then from there, yeah, I spent just over 10 years on our team. So right now from a weapons training point of view, um, again, this is a firefighter talking to a police officer, so I'm not, you know, well embedded, but obviously I get to speak to a lot of amazing people. Um, you know, one of the shortcomings again, in some departments seems to be, you know, the qualification, you know, once every six months, once every year, six shots, paper target, all right, you're golden. And, you know, for, it's like, you know, the fire service, all right, go put a ladder up against that wall. All right, you're good to be a firefighter again for another year. So what's the lens in your department regarding not only weapons training, but, you know, under duress, being able to operate in, you know, in an actual scenario that might replicate one of the worst days, you know, one of your officers could have. So across the board, we're, we're the highest trained department in the state. I believe training saves lives and, and I've seen it save lives. So we, we have a training day that we do for department wide, like once a month, we're usually training on a topic. Once a year we do uh, what's called full force training where it's a day of just scenarios, but we work scenario based training into all of our, a lot of our different training, whether it's our emergency vehicle operations or EVOC, uh, or if it's defensive tactics, we'll work some scenarios in. We have a shooting simulator here where it's all scenario based. So we do a lot of scenario based simunition stuff. Uh, those are paint bullets. Uh, and so they, they're shot out of a gun that's actually your actual, an actual firearm. So we do a lot of that stuff and no one wants to get shot with a paint bullet because they kind of hurt when they hit. So you want to do the right thing. So you stay dialed in and you stay focused. Uh, we do a lot of that. We do, uh, we offer practice shoots once a month. So guys can go up and we, we provide the ammunition, the targets, the instructors. So they go up, they can go up once a month and go shoot, uh, whether it's their handgun, their shotgun or their rifle. Um, they can go up to the, the practice shoots. And then we do, uh, we do a lot of scenario based stuff on the range too. We're not just standing and punching paper. Of course we have to do our standard. We do a 40 round qualification course that, but it works in all this stuff that 
we actually teach. So in our qualifications, moving and shooting, there's pivots, there's safety circle, there's kneeling, there's moving and shooting forward and backward, there's failure drills, uh, multiple round drills, uh, mandatory reloading. So it's it, our qualification is based off of things we actually do. You just don't stand in one spot and fire six rounds and, you know, put your gun back in the holster. You have to actually scan. You have to, you have to, you know, if your ammo is your responsibility, so you have to make sure that you're doing all the right things. And we actually grade them on what's called on a shooter sheet. So our instructors are constantly watching what the officers are doing. And if there's a gun handling problem, then we, they write that down and they address that issue. So we, we, we're just not just going up a punch of paper. We're actually putting in scenarios. We do combat courses up at the range. Uh, we do team movement up at the range. We actually will incorporate breaching and live fire room entry into our training. So we do a lot of different, uh, topics. We do both low light and daytime shoots and qualifications with both with the handgun rifle and the shotgun. So, so again, was that already in place when you got there? And if not, talk to me about the evolution of maybe the old school way of doing it to where you are now. So, yeah, like with our defensive tactics, you know, things have come a long way. We went from only having, uh, handguns, right. And shotguns. And now as we've progressed, and, and a big thing is, is letting the instructors through decentralized command, letting them come up with these ideas and these programs when they go to a school of coming back and saying, hey, boss, I want to implement this. And here's the why. Um, you know, we we had we had a, we've always had a pretty good firearms program. The guys that were in firearms, you know, that was really, really good. And then as we progressed to the rifles started off kind of slow like of course after the LA LA bank shootout that's when that's when a lot of agencies started getting rifles and then we had a rifle in the car or first of all supervisors had rifles and when I was a patrolman I'm like this is dumb right a supervisor's not going to show up give them to us and so then we got them in the cars and then me and another um uh, as a sergeant at the time we went down to an NRA class down in uh, Las Vegas in the early 2000s and we came back and we got the uh, our basic training for rifle program. We we ended up writing the curriculum for that and uh, getting uh, rifles for officers. And we we started off by allowing them to carry their own personal rifle. And as as we were able to justify money in the budget, now we've got every officer uh, is equipped with an eleven and a half inch short barrel rifle with a suppressor on it, with an optic and a light and a sling. And so that's a standard issue and it's the same rifle. And so it's, it, it's progressed over the years as we've been able to justify, um, you know, budgetary reasons. And, and it went from having a rifle in the to supervisors, to a rifle assigned to a car, to a rifle assigned to, uh, the particular officer. And so that's done because, uh, you know, th those are precision weapons. They need to be issued to those officers and they're responsible for them. I mean, I remember back in the day in the in the mid 90s where you would check your shotgun. It's like, why are there cigarette butts in my shotgun? Right. And and so it, it allows the officers to take better care of it. Now, and now if there's something wrong with the rifle, it's their responsibility and there's a higher level of accountability for them. So I love that. Um, one thing that's obviously come up a couple of times is 
uh, officer reaching for, I'm assuming, a, a taser and ended up reaching for their firearm and, and killing someone that they, I'm, I'm sure, intended of just tasing. Do you have yeah. any things in place to really drill so that doesn't happen? Yes, we do. Uh, so we, in our scenario, we do a scenario-based training. That's part of our taser training. Once again, where scenarios are interweaved into our actual training program. So we have that. We also do uh, mix that in with our defensive tactics and we mix that in with our firearms training too, where they have to transition to a, a taser or secondary weapon. And we, it's policy for us that you carry the, that taser on the opposite side of your body. Um, we don't have gear on our body up, up top. So our, you can wear an exterior vest carrier, but you can only wear that exterior vest carrier. It looks like a shirt and it's an option here. Um, so there's, we don't allow the taser to be carried on a drop leg or um, on the same side as a firearm. It's, it's on the opposite side uh, of the body. And there's mandatory training for that. The holster's a little bit different. Uh, and so I, I think a lot of that's through training, through policy, good policy, good procedures, um, and good follow-up on, on the supervisors and when they're reviewing those policies and procedures and reviewing videos and stuff like that to make sure there's not any training issues. So with that, and obviously I'm, I'm, you know, there's such a diverse spectrum of, um, videos out there from, and I always use it as a, as an example, because I think it is a pretty hard example. The Derek Chauvin case, you know, seems to be the one extreme but then we have a lot of the more gray areas and i'm always talking to people you know trying to present the case of of you know um being held over for mandatories being sleep deprived being under trained whatever it is through your lens coming from a department that does seem very well trained does seem very progressive what are some of the common themes common denominators that you're seeing in some of these tragedies whether it was you know completely wrong as in you know the George Floyd or whether it's one of these heartbreaking things that was just kind of a a split sta- split second mistake that most people actually would have made yeah so you know with like with anything with any first responder it, the first thing they're going to do is you know it's and I'll, I'll quote Graham V. Connor on this, which is situations that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. So Graham V. Connor is the use of force case law that it's the foundation for our use of force policy. So, and it, it talks about situations that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. So that's one of the common things that you're seeing in a lot of these use of force incidents. They are quickly evolving there. Uh, and it's only based off the information that they have at that moment in time. Now in, you know, any of your, your news cycles, they can sit there and they can talk about that 20 seconds for 24 hours. But the officers or the firemen that are out there doing those things, they don't have that, that luxury. So that's why training is so important. Having good policies, good procedures, a good review process and a, and a good, uh, good supervision, you know, to know that, Hey, that behavior is not going to be tolerated in this department if if you do certain things. Um, so when you look at some of those situations, I always I always ask, hey, what's the training program? What's the policy? Uh, how is that policy enforced? And how is the review of those uh, review of those incidents? Like anytime we have a use of force incident here, we report in, in our program what's called Smart Force, and then it's reviewed all the way up to me. Um, some agencies do it different. You know, there's a review process somehow, but to know that that it goes through several layers of supervision to make sure that 
the policies were were followed to the best of their ability. The procedures, the the law was followed. Uh, the case law was followed. Proper training. You know, we've identified several training issues as we've reviewed these 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 use of force incidents, and then made adjustments either to our policy or made adjustments to our training to make sure that you know we're not missing any of those gaps. And sometimes you know those gaps get missed when there's. Uh, you know, there's case law out there that talks about fail to supervise. There's case law out there that talks about fail to train. So we, I, I just never want to be one of those agencies that has that case law attached to them. Yeah, and that's what I see as well is, you know, a lot of these cases, again, some are blatantly the individual, but a lot of them are a combination and, and it's the individual that's basically the scapegoat, you know, and it's not fair because they're not taking into account the environment that they were put in. A, yeah. lot, of, a lot of things as a martial artist myself that I see – um, is lack of strength and conditioning and then lack of, you know, hands-on defensive tactics training. And many of the guests I've had on that walk the walk in both of those report very little hands-on because they're a walking deterrent. <laughs> you know, you can tell if someone knows what they're doing. So talk to me about the evolution of your DTAC side. Yeah, so defensive tactics started off, I mean, we had, you know, we had a striking and we had, you know, some joint locks that we, that we would teach. And, um, and we stayed with the same program. We had, a, you know, uh, our impact weapons with the batons. That's kind of, I started off the department. All you had was a gun, pepper spray, handcuffs, flashlight. And then we got into the, uh, I had a PR 24, but that stayed in the car, uh, cause it was big bulky. Then we graduated to the ASP or the collapsible baton. And then, um, as things progressed, our defensive tactics got a little more uh, detailed, got a little more, it got better. Uh, and then we, uh, I want to say about three years, three or four years ago, we started to do a, a real deep dive. Um, I'm still a master instructor for our defensive tactics program here in the state of Idaho. And we did a uh, collaboration with our Idaho Post and it's peace officer standards and training that, uh, you know, most states have that. And we started looking at several defensive tactics programs that were out there because what we were seeing was we're teaching stuff that maybe if you don't practice it a lot, it's not going to be effective on the street. So when we started looking at programs, we um, we got a hold of LAPD and talked to Justin Wade down there and Justin uh developed a program after years and years of research uh, of what what were officers using, what was effective on the street, and then built their training program around that. And so their program, uh, he worked with, I know he worked with Henner Gracie a lot on that program. And, and we've trained with Hoyce up here. Uh, and and he developed what's called Archon, arrest control. And a lot of it is about getting the person to the ground, getting control of them, and getting them in handcuffs. Uh, you know, it has some striking in it. It has, uh, it has a, like two joint locks, the two joint locks that I've used throughout my career. Um, there's a third optional one, but they're very, they're not, they're not, extensive into the joint locks because unless you practice those joint locks a lot, right? So we evolved um, and looked at what was working, what's efficient, what's effective on the street. And we went and as a, as a group of master instructors from all out the state, we decided to, to go with the Archon system. 
So we ended up uh, bringing up Justin and Tim and Nate out of LAPD and trained with them for a couple of weeks and we adopted their program. And now our whole state is actually on that program. It's all, I think we're the first state to do that and adopt their program. And that, that system, not only is it effective and efficient and it's a lot simpler, right? Simple, clear, concise. So a lot, a lot of people are able to learn a little bit more, but it's also tried and tested in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which we're in, in Idaho here. So um, that's the one thing I like about it. Justin has a lot of facts that back up why you do what you do and what's been tried and tested in court. Now, you know, a question, and I don't have any skin in the game at all, but just curious knowing the effectiveness of what I'm about to say in a gym space. Um, what is your stance, not even stance, just, you know, view on the ability of using chokes to de- detain? Because, I mean, ov- obviously the danger is you don't let go of the person, you know, could be hurt, but with the right thing, because, I mean, you know, as, as we know in the dojo setting, very, very effective. You're, you're compliant almost immediately. I think you just said it all right there. <laughs> I mean, it, they, they work. And when they're properly trained and it's at that proper level of force, it's not like, you know, I would never condone saying, hey, you're under arrest. And the guy saying F you and, you know, and it's the drunk dude that's just staggering around and you go up and throw a throw a carotid control hold on them. Right. No, that's for the person that's fighting. You know, that's for the person that maybe you've tased and they've ripped out the probes and they look at you and they go, bring it. And, and you know, those are the people that they're usually they're under the influence of something. Usually they're they've got some training uh, and, you know, a lot of times they may be disrobed and they're sweaty or bloody and strikes aren't working. You've tried other things. So I, I, I believe that they're, they're, they're effective when they're properly used, properly trained and, and, and for that moment in time. But once, once it's done, you know, you cannot leave one on anybody. You being a martial artist yourself, you know, you just can't sit there with holding a carotid hold on someone for forever. I think that, I think that, you know, what was used in Minnesota was not a carotid hold at all. It was, it was, that's nothing that we train. That's nothing that we have in our policy. That's nothing that, you know, we would, we would ever condone. Uh, but when you look at it, they're very effective. They end the fight quick. There's no blood. There's no, you know, permanent damage to anybody when they're properly applied. It's when they're improperly applied. Uh, and when they're not trained and there's no policy on them that, that govern them, that, uh, where, where people get hurt. So, yeah, well, you yourself said it, you, you used it in the dojo. I'm, I mean, I'm sure you probably had one around you a ton of times. Like two days ago, my neck's still sore. So <laughs> one of them I couldn't tap because I was on my belly and his arm was over my mouth as well. So I like the little piggy squeal when you finally let go. Sure. Very embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> so I think they have their time and place. Um, and, and I think that, you know, Anytime you have a knee jerk reaction to something and you take away a good tool from from law enforcement, then, you know, you rely on on one thing. I think that overall we've become too reliant on the taser and not trained defensive tactics. And it's like the taser is effective. It's good when it works. But when they don't, when it doesn't work or the person rips the probes out and it's like, oh, crap. Right. You watch someone ride the lightning and it don't work. 
that you got some you got some problems and that person you know going through agitated chaotic event or aka excited delirium where they have superhuman strength they don't feel anything um you know what options do you have i don't want to shoot that person right they're going they're they're generally they're reacting from something that that they've consumed or have consumed in the past and they're not of their right mind yeah so it's the most humane thing to do and that's the problem you know and that's what i see with the deconditioned untrained you know clearly in these videos officers is they're pretty much go-to and it's the same with civilian you know all the the guys that own 40 guns that are morbidly obese their go-to is the weapon the lethal force immediately you know so yeah i mean that's uh that's really good to hear now with um the sro position um you know obviously that's a great way of again creating a relationship with the community but with you being you know swap me involved with canine with all these these hats that you've had um what what lens do you look at school security with your department yeah. So, you know, when I first got into my career, the last thing I ever thought I was going to be as a school resource officer, I kind of looked at that position when I eh, whatever, that's lame. Right. And I was a young default aggressive police officer that, you know, uh, you know, it's and and a mentor of mine comes to me one day. He's like, hey, Raj, I'm going to be an SRO. And I'm like, what are you doing, Stevie? What are you talking about? And I mean, Steve, Steve Williams was my wingman and I did bodybuilding competitions with him back in the day. And, and, you know, and he was on SWAT with me and I'm like, why are you being an SRO? And he, he sat me down and he was about 20 years older than me. He sat me down and he kind of laid it out. And I went, Hmm, if Stevie's doing it. So I went over and I actually became an SRO and like the first week I was like, what am I doing here? And, and then I found my groove and it was actually one of my most favorite jobs, uh, in the department and built some solid relationships. So I learned, I learned at a young age about the importance of building relationships with the students, with parents, with teachers. And in fact, I've got students that I was an SRO from 01 to 03 for, so for two years I was an SRO before I got promoted, um, and those kids still come talk to me today and they have kids of their own and they'll be like, Hey, remember when we did this? Or I, and then when I was an SRO, I actually had an after school weightlifting program. I started that and I, I coached wrestling. So I got really involved with that. And, and I have kids that I coached and had that after school weightlifting program to me and they still come to me today. And, uh, or we had a, we had a summer program where we did a, a lot of outdoor activities, whitewater rafting and scuba diving and mountain climbing with the kids and some community cleanup projects and stuff like that, where they still remember those events. And I, I think, I think it's very solid because there was a couple of, of students that came to me when I was an SRO and said, and there was two girls, totally unrelated, total different situations within a, within a month period that they, they were, their plan was to go commit suicide in the lunchroom with butcher knives. They had then, and, and they had knives and both girls had knives in their lockers. Both girls had had notes. And because I built solid relationships with those students, they came to me and they felt comfortable to tell me that that was going on. And I was able to call their parents and get some mental health treatment for those for those two young ladies. And and they were alive and well. And, and because we were able to intercede as 
you know, as a police department, as a school and get them the help that they needed and make sure that they were, they were good and safe. And I, I, I think that that position is very important in any agency because you build relationships with those students that are lifelong and they are very precious and it gets to the kids to see you as an officer from a different perspective. They get to see that, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a normal guy who, you know, we have some of the same likes. Like I, these kids were out skateboarding and I, I came out there with my old school Tony Hawk skateboard and they were like, what's that? And it, you know, it's like from the eighties. So it's shaped a lot differently. So then they try doing some things on it and I show them how to do some things. It's like, Oh, well, wait a minute. You know, he's got some of the same interests. Uh, and in music and movies and stuff. And, and you, you start to learn to have some like commonalities about things and you have some like interests in things and it breaks down some barriers and to let, you know, it's like, well, there's a, a dude behind that badge and, you know, behind that uniform that's, you know, just a normal guy. So. Yeah. It's interesting as well. Um, Craig Konaomi, I don't know if you know who that is. He, uh, He's the, one of the cops in um, Washington State. He was originally from Hawaii, but he's online. He's the skateboarding cop, and again, that's that's his connection to to his community. And he actually was at the muster in Orlando where I was at, um, and then uh, Pat Russo started um, NYPD um, cops and kids. Oh, got that right? Anyway, that's the boxing club that they have up there, um, and uh, you know, so taking the time to invest in the community, and as you said you know, humanize yourself. That's the problem. That's what we do with the enemy. You know, it's Haji, it's, you know, gooks, it's all this, we, we make up words and you guys are the popo, the pigs, the, you know, whatever. No, you're all people that, you know, these kids don't realize give a huge sacrifice every day. But, you know, if they listen to certain groups, all they're going to get is that, that two-dimensional, you know, perspective. And it's interesting you say with the mental health stuff, because I had the opposite, my son's middle school, and I won't bore everyone listening with the story again, but basically would completely drop the ball, like completely overreacted when he was just going through some stuff at home and was just, just sad. And he ended up being Baker acted and locked away in a psych ward for three days on her decision. So because she wanted to go home because it was the end of her shift. So I couldn't agree more that the right person in the school is, is essential. Now, another thing I just I had, um, some of the, the responders and the student and her father who's also responded from the Parkland in this incident. Obviously, there's a, an incident there where the wrong person assigned can allow children to die. Let's be blunt about it. So what's your perspective of, you know, not allowing it to be a kind of retiree spot, but understanding, you know, the potential that could be, that could be one of the worst incidents any county or city has seen? Yeah, you got to pick the right person for that job. And we, you know, that that's through screening. So we, for us, we do an interview process to go there and to make sure that person's a right fit. We actually have people from the school district and the principal from that school that they're going to go to sit on the interview panel to make sure that they're going to be a good fit. And we talked and we, you know, we, we watch the officers as they, as they progress. And, you know, it's like, you know, who's going to be a good fit. And I want to know their why, why are you doing it? Why are you going over to the school? What's your, what's your why? Right. And, and we, like, we got a, a new SRO that's, that's going over. And I think he's going to be tremendous. His, for the, the high school students, um, his daughter actually died in a, a car accident. And when he starts presenting about that, if you don't get emotional, 
you need to go get your your heart checked because he gives such a, a a good presentation and he cares. That's someone you want in the schools is somebody who cares and uh, tremendously about the youth. Um, I had a a student uh, when I was at the middle school and his dad. I didn't know this about him until you know I got to know him. His dad. Uh, was in prison pretty much his whole life and he had no positive male role model in his life and I took this kid under my wing and he actually started mowing my grass at my house and I was paying him to do that I took him to the Idaho State University uh, basketball games and football games and started doing a lot of stuff with him and became a mentor to him and he he talked to me the other uh, not too long ago and he said you don't know this but you had a tremendous impact in my life and because of you, I'm the person I am today. And I mean, you, you, that stuff, you it's priceless. I mean, you can't put a price tag on that. When you have, when you positively impact one person's life like that and to have that influence is, that's, that's my why, right? I mean, you get into this job, you know, cause it's an interesting job, but really you're, you're dealing with people. And, and when you can do that with someone at that as an SRO or even as a police officer or fireman or, or whoever, uh, EMS, you know, uh, person that that that's that's powerful stuff right there. Well, and I think that's what is lost in all this kind of polarizing conversation. You know, it's the it's the finger pointing or oh, the police should have done this. The you know the school should have done that. You know, and versus just. You know, I talk about just walking out your front door and helping someone in your community. If we all help one person, we change the world. But what people do is fold their arms and expect other people to do the work and then blame people when it's not getting done, you know? So I think, I mean, the, the mentorship is so obvious, but it takes work. And I think that we've become so complacent that a lot of people don't realize that you know, if, if they want, you know, the the world that they want to see, they have to be part of the change. They have to be out there. And, you know, you, you might be knitting with someone, you might be, you know, basketball, you might be, you know, who knows what it is, Take teaching yoga in the park, whatever it is, but everyone has a skill set that can positively affect someone in their community. Yeah, you know, and that's, that's something that, you know, I've carried on all throughout my, my career. And, and I'll send you a video of, of me working out with the, with the football players up here with the college football athletes. And, and I've kind of taken that on with, with the student athletes here with the now, and now the basketball team, the football team and the basketball team of, of building relationships with those guys and re- actually recruit out of, out of there. So I have a lot of former student athletes that work here at the police department. So Beautiful. I think that that's important. Absolutely. Well, yeah. let, let's talk about Echelon Front. So as you climb up and, you know, obviously you end up as the chief of police, at what point in, in that journey did you discover, you know, Jocko and Leif and, and, and that whole organization? And then talk to me about attending their events and then, and then how you've applied it to your own department. Yeah. So um, probably about five years ago, maybe six, whenever the good video came out. I was over at the academy. I was teaching a, a officer survival class, patrol procedures, and one of the other instructors threw, threw this good video up, and I'm like, "Hmm, I kind of like that." And so I started watching some of his stuff on YouTube, and I'm like, "Hey, I kind of, I kind of like this Jocko guy. He's kind of got a good message." And so as I 
I was a captain at the time. And so I started kind of sprinkling a little bit of that stuff. And I kind of did some of that. I was doing a lot of that stuff. I just didn't know what to call it. I did decentralized command. I just didn't know what to call it. And we did a lot of, you know, our philosophies were cover move. I just didn't know what to call it. And so I started, you know, I'm like, oh, he's got a book out there. And I hate reading. I mean, I I will listen to a book. So I, I bought Extreme Ownership and I started reading it. And and I mean, I you can you can see here, there's my my copy. I've got tabs and I mean it's all highlighted. I got notes in the margin, dog-eared, you know, and you know, and then this is my this is my favorite page though. Um, I mean, both Jocko and Leif signed it. And um, so I, I started, you know, studying the book and then I, I'm like, hey, you know, how can I get these guys up here? And it was like ridiculously expensive. I'm like, yeah, there's no way that's happening. Right. So so I, I got I found EF online and I was the deputy chief at the time. And I started and, and that was one of the things like our guys here when I was as I was coming up through the ranks, they were like, Hey, we want some, some meat and potatoes with leadership direction. Like, where are we headed? Where's the ship headed? So I would give them what I could give them. Like when I was a captain over my division, I could affect that division, but I couldn't affect the entire department. Then I became deputy chief and I was a deputy chief for only a year before I got this job, but I started to, to provide that guidance as, as the deputy chief. And then I got on the EF online platform and it's like, oh, this is what we're looking for. This is exactly what we are. It's the, uh, their, their leadership principles, their laws of combat are exactly what we were looking for. And then as I got on the EF online, right, start building a relationship with those guys and then, you know, got dichotomy. Right. It's all tabbed up. Right. It's all. And I actually broke this down and wrote note uh, my own my own translation of it so I can understand it better. And then all of a sudden leadership strategy and tactics comes out. And once again, all tabbed up, marked up. And then I've got books in my office from the EF online training sessions, the Zoom calls and and what the way that kind of happened is like. So, right. I got on that. And it was once a week. And Jay, I think JP did the first one that I was on. And then COVID hit. And then it's like, oh, crap, Jocko's on here. Oh, Leif's on here, right? And so started tuning in. And, and so from the beginning of the EF Online, or now the Extreme Academy, ownership, uh, Extreme Ownership Academy, uh, that that platforms out there and I go to that every Monday, Wednesday, Friday uh, to get, you know, to get fed. It's kind of like, you know, I, I go to church every Sunday to get fed. Right. So I, I for my leadership stuff, I'm go I'm going to to the, the academy there via Zoom to get to get fed. Um, you know, I've had the, I've had the blessing of, of, of training with them, you know, in person at the FTX where you apply those principles that you learn and breaking it down and talking with them. And I, I can't tell you how important that has been for our department, for our 
I, I talked about leadership development program. So I bought, I bought the, um, licenses for sergeants and above, and they, they do team training with their team where they go through the foundation courses and they talk about the foundation courses with their team. Part of, uh, that leadership development, there's points for your promotion. If you want to get promoted, you got to go through the foundation courses and your supervisor has to check off on you. I also, part of the test questions, that this is mandatory reading at my department if you want to get promoted. Extreme ownership, dichotomy of leadership, leadership strategy tactics. Part of the written test is questions out of these books. And then in the assessment center itself, parts of the, of the, the test are actually, did these, did these people apply these principles? Did they apply cover move? Did they apply simple? Did they apl- apply prioritize execute? Apply decentralized command? And then we talk about it all the time. Like I'll play clips from the webinars. Like we played a clip on J- one of JP's uh, webinars uh, at our full staff meeting about being, are you a squatter? Are you a, a renter? Or are you an owner? And where are you at in this department? And then we talked about that. What's you know, if you have a squatter, what do you do with them? If you have a renter, how do you how do you move them up to being an owner in the department? And I'll, I'll, it's really helped with uh, the decentralized command component. Has really helped with buy-in because we had a department before. I mean, uh, you know, my my chief was good. I I got along with my chief. He had a, he had a good heart and his intentions were good. Um, and but everything was very centralized command. And it, it was all that way. And I think it's a lot, a lot of that way in a lot of departments. And now my guys come to me and they're like, Hey boss, I want to do this. And they, I, they know what I'm going to say. They know that they're going to get, well, how do you think you're going to get that done? What's your plan to get that done? And they're getting used to that now of, Hey boss, I got a plan and here, here's what it is. And if it's not, what I'm exactly looking for, I'll ask questions. And those questions will generally lead to, to the answers that I'm looking for. And if it's about 80% of what I want, I may ask some questions to get me to 85%. And I've learned to let that other 15% go. And I think that a lot of people in leadership positions are like, well, that's not exactly what I wanted. Well, if it's exactly what I wanted, then then it becomes my plan, right? And then the guys don't have the the ownership in that. And I I put up a suggestion board in my department here, and we've implemented just about every suggestion that's been put up on that board. Um, guys wanted facial hair; they wanted to be able. I mean, we had goatees; they wanted beards year round. And man, I struggled with that. I struggled with that, and I'm like, and I got some other chiefs' perspectives, and I I thought, okay. If they want to do that, it's it's a simple thing that I can do. It doesn't cost me any money, but it's going to dramatically impact morale for a positive. So I allowed it. I just said, they're like, what are your standards? I said, if I give you a quarter, then if you if you if you see me giving you a quarter, then you probably need to think about trimming your beard because I don't want to I don't want you to look like, you know, all scraggly, like I need to give you a quarter to get something to eat. And so, so those are some simple things that we've done. I changed the tattoo policy. Um, to what? From, from what to what? From no visible tattoos to, in fact, I just hired a guy 
that's got tattoos, uh, I made an exception for him because he's got a good character. He's got a good heart. Um, to, to having tattoos, uh, you know, they could have a sleeve if they want it. And it can be visible. I did no face tattoos, no, you know, no neck, neck tattoos, no head tattoos. But uh, this guy made an exception for his hands. He was in the military. He got some tattoos on his hands. And I, he passed everything else. He passed all the hard stuff. So nowadays, police officers are too hard to come by to find somebody you know of character that's going to pass everything that want actually want to be a cop. So there's some things you know I just you know you got to let it go, and and that's some of the things that I've really taken to heart when you take these leadership principles that that Jocko and Leif teach, and you take them to heart, then it's not about you; it's about you know, it's not, a, it's all on you, but it's not about you. In fact, JP, JP did a, one of his things. He, he talked about that. And I felt so strongly about that. I put that saying outside my door of my office. So every day I walk out, I see it's all on you, but it's not about you. And Jocko talks about that in leadership strategy and tactics. And so that I see every day that I walk out of my office to know it's not about me. It, it's about not only the men and women that work in my department, but it's about my community because all the things and decisions and choices that I make will have an impact on my community. So, and, and to, to sprinkle that down to the, you know, the sergeants, to the corporals, to the officers, to know that everybody here has the ability to lead and make a decision and that can impact the, the department. If people have ideas, they bring up the chain of command now with a plan. And it's like, I don't want to make all the decisions here. We have a lot of smart people here. And if you let those smart people do those things, man, the impact on morale is, is huge. And, and their buy-in, their ownership of the department is huge. Um, allowing them to have some impact like on the career path, right? They know that if they provide a suggestion, I'm going to make a change. And it, but it, that didn't happen overnight. It, it takes time and it, it's tiring because you've got to bring your A game every day. Every day you've got to bring it and, and you have to like live up to these things. You just can't go out and go, yeah, it's all about cover move. It's not about me. It's about them. It's about the mission, right? You can't say that stuff and then go and do things that are contrary to that. You have to live up to those standards because my guys are watching, my guys and gals are watching me every day. And I know that they're not only watching what I do like at work, but they're looking at what I do away from work too. So that's important stuff. No, absolutely. It was so good to hear as well, because well, we talked before about a couple of things. Firstly, um, in the fire service, and you said it was the same in law enforcement, you know, we have classes that we have to pass to promote. So, you know, you get someone who basically goes to the fire college they take their, you know, fire officer, one, two, whatever it is that they're required to get. And now, boom, congratulations, you're a leader because you got these pieces of paper. And there's no leadership actually taught. So I love the idea that you've taken, you know, what I would would, would uh, concur as, as a great group of leaders. So definitely, a, you know, a group to, to use as the core, the nucleus. And I have that as a parallel path with obviously your you know, uh, profession requirements that you have to fulfill, but actually create leadership training within that so that when you are in charge of X amount of people, that you've been given that skill set. I think what happens is in the fire service, one day someone's wearing a white shirt, they're sitting on the front right of the fire engine, 
and they haven't been given the tools to how to manage either that crew or a station. Yeah, you passed a test. Here you go. Don't crash the car. Here's your stripes. Don't crash the car, right? And I saw that as I grew up. Like, you know, I take the assessment center. I do good on that. And, you know, you get your stripes and it's like, okay, now what do I do, right? And you've never been given that that foundation. And so not only do we do that, but like we – we have like an action planning class and the, the high, whatever your rank is, the more complicated that action plan, you have to actually go out and develop an action plan. Um, we do a, a, a discipline class, like how to, how to, okay, when, when do you discipline, when do you train? Right. And when, how, how do you do that? Do you, you know, don't be heavy handed with people. And we talk about that. We talk about proper documentation as a supervisor. We have a mentoring program where if you're, if you want to move to the next rank, you have to get with that person of the higher rank. Like if you're a sergeant, you want to be a lieutenant, you have to go through with the lieutenants in all the different divisions in the department and learn what they do ahead of time. So, um, we've got a coaching mentoring class, um, that, that we teach. So these are all things that, that we've, we've, I've listened to the bitches and complaints and moans and of, of growing up, not only just here, not only just here at this department, but other departments as I go to train, cause I'm uh, part of the FBI national Academy uh, associates. So I went to the Academy in 2014, listening to those guys there and what are issues in their departments. And as I go over to the chiefs meetings or I'd go over to post and teach and I listen to the line staff there, what their complaints are of doing things to, you know, fix those. And, okay, how do we fix that? Well, let's come up with some leadership development. And so the guys are ready to step in so they understand as a sergeant what their expectations are. I think giving the officers and the supervisors and the leaders um, those clear expectations of what, what they – what especially what I expect of them – what their community expects of them gives them gives them the why. Once you know your why, once you know your mission, right? Our mission at, at our department is very simple. And I changed it when I was a deputy chief. We had this long, nobody knew what it was. And so I said, you know, we've had this saying on our cars, on all over our building, and it is that's going to be our mission statement. And it's simple. It's two words. It's community commitment. That's our mission statement. So and I've told the guys, what does that mean? Well, that means we're going to be visible. We're going to be visible in our community. We're going to be out there. We're going to be interacting with them. We're going to be doing lots of stuff with our community. We're going to be approachable. We're not going to be a bunch of robots out there. We're going to be people that people feel like they can come up and talk to. And but on the flip side of that, we're going to let people know that crime is not acceptable in our community. If you come here and you commit a crime, right, you're going to be held accountable for that. And part of that is, you know, one of my expectations of hard work of treat every call as if your family was involved. If you go out and you handle every call as if your family is involved, you're going to do a good, complete, thorough job. You're going to treat people with dignity and respect. You're going to listen to others. You're going to be humble. You're going to work hard. You're going to be decisive. You're going to be balancing your decisions. Oh, a lot of things from leadership strategy tactics, page 156, 57, right? Yeah, right, right in there that you're going to be following up on. And so... Um, you know, when you're doing, when you're doing those things, you're going to be a successful leader. And, uh, actually it's 157, 158, my bad. But, but the thing is, is when you do those things, when you have those expectations and that, and that mission, right. 
the guys understand those things and they're going to do those right things if they understand what the mission and what the end state is. And I, and, and I've been growing up in this department. I've worked for leaders that have had, weren't able to explain the mission to me. And we talk about the mission all the time. And it's because it, and it, it, you know, we, and I narrowed it down to two words because why it follows the second law of combat of simple, it's simple, clear, and concise. Right. So I think that when you have those things and, and understanding the, what the, those leadership principles, those laws of combat talk about and how to apply them. Cause every time like somebody asks a question on, on the, the, the academy, I'm always thinking of like, how can I apply that for me? I know we're talking about like maybe Evan Dibby and talking about like a recording studio or something, but how does that cross over into, into law enforcement? Because at the end of the day, leadership is leadership, whether you're leading first responders or an oil company or, a, a you know, a sporting goods company, leadership is leadership. And, and those principles apply across the board. And when you do these things that, you know, I mean, when you're applying the principles in the right way and you're looking at it and you're keeping your ego in check, uh, and understanding that it's all on you, but it's not about you, then those, those things will fall into place. When you take care of your people, your people are going to take care of you. It's, you know, when my people go out and do a great job, you know, I let them know that they did a great job. And there's multiple examples of of that. I just, you know, had handed out a few life-saving awards for, for, you know, uh, our, one of our, our female officers that talked to, a person, uh, uh, you know, essentially off a ledge because she cares. She's a mom. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm a dad. I got three daughters. You know, people are asking, like, what's the the best thing you can prepare to become chief? I said, oh, I have three teenage daughters, right? I mean, they, they grilled me. Uh, they put me through the paces. And, you know, but being a father helps give you that perspective on things, too, of, you know, listening Cause like when I communicate too, like, and, and, and this is one thing Leif taught, like you think you're communicating a level 10, right? I'm always thinking, yeah, I'm at a 10, but no, really I'm at a three or below. And, and that's nowhere better reflected than my own home. And it's, so I've got to really, and one of the things that these guys have taught me is the, the power of the readback, Dave Burke, right? Talking about the power of the readback of like, okay, guys, what did you just hear me say? And have them say it back to you in my own, in their own words. And I, we do that when we go out on calls, like, like we'll go to a domestic and be like, okay, what did I just tell you? Oh, you said it was okay if I stayed at the house. No, 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 that's not what I said. I said, you need to leave. You need to go find somewhere else to stay for the night, whether that's a friend's house or a parent's house. Where can I help you go? So we got to make sure that we're when we're communicating as leaders from the bottom to the top and the top to the bottom, that we're doing those good readbacks with people that they're under, you know, it's I, like Chris Tucker from Russia, right? It's like, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth, right? It's like, we got to make sure that we, people are understanding those words that are coming out of our mouths. So I, I, I those, and, and at building the relationship with, with Jocko and Leif and those guys and having them help me work through problems. Um, and some things there's, there's no script for. You know, I've called I've called JP up with issues that I've had and going, 
or Cody Gandy up and going, dude, I'm, I'm stumped on this one. I don't know what to do. And, and being able to have the ability to, to do that has been, you know, it's, it's priceless. Well, another thing that they talk about a lot that I think is so pertinent and you, you, you touched on it in the fire service and a lot of the police agencies, I'm sure is centralized command. And that's what I found is really, you know, frustrating in some of those departments that I work for is you have some really motivated men and women who have expertise in X, Y, and Z. You know, one might run a tactical medicine course on the side and is a perfect person to bring that to the department. And one might be a strength and conditioning coach, the person, perfect person to bring that. But ego gets in the way and it is that micromanaging element. So when we spoke a little while ago, you gave me an example of decentralized command with your canine program. So tell me about that. So, um, so recently we just had a um an officer get promoted and he got a new dog his dog passed away we had great members from our community donate eighty five hundred dollars to us to get a new dog so we got a new dog and then corporal lacy um he got he got his new dog thor and so thor and him were bonding well akila is very uh default aggressive and he wants to want to be a sergeant and he took the test and he got promoted and uh the way our department's set up it's kind of hard for you to be a sergeant and run a team of guys and be a canine handler at the same time so we if if you're new if we, he knew that if he got promoted he was going to have to give that dog up so um he gave the dog up he, you know he gave the dog up because he wants to he wants my job and I'm co- totally cool with that. I want to give him the tools to get to have my job. And so um, they had to develop a plan. They're like, they came to my office. They're like, well, we need we need to have a plan uh, to do this. I'm like, okay, cool. So I, we're going to meet, have them meet with us, uh, with senior staff um, next Tuesday. So they come to the meeting and, and we start talking. And I, I'm letting them talk. I'm letting them work through this plan. So I'm listening to all these different ideas that they have. I grab a, made sure it was a dry erase marker. I went over to the dry erase, the dry erase board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've done that before. So, um, and so I, I don't say a word. I just write mission. And they, they all kind of shut up and they looked over at the whiteboard. They go, what's your guys' mission here? with, with what you're, with all that you're talking about. And so like identify a new handler and develop a training plan. So I, 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 you know, I, we condensed that. I said, okay, come up with a simpler version of that. And so we wrote, I wrote that on the board. What, okay. Now what are some things that you guys can do to successfully complete that mission? So they start throwing out ideas and I start writing them on the board and I just became a scribe. So I wrote these things on the board. I go, okay, sounds like you guys have some solid ideas here. Do you think you could develop a training plan on how you're going to get this done, but not just come up with a plan, but come up with some alternative plans, some contingency plans in case one of those doesn't work out? And they're like, yeah. I go, do you think you can have those done by August the 10th? Yeah, we can. So I said, okay, this is your, your, your task is to come up with, develop a plan, develop a budget, develop some guidelines and 
come to me with a plan and do inter- they had a plan for interviews on how they were going to interview people, which we, we have a, a pretty standardized way to interview. So they already knew how to do that. Uh, I said, come to me with a plan by the 10th. I don't want to have to develop it. I got other things to do. So they did all the work. They came up with three plans. And I said, which one do you guys want to go with? We, we think plan A is the best. Okay, make it happen. So they did all the work. They contacted all the, the, the training venues. They came up with the guidelines and the standards for how they were going to train this new handler. Because we had an in-house handler or trainer, but he's he's been tasked to do our, our new street crimes unit. So I'd have to pull that, that resource away, and it would be going to cost a bunch of overtime, which that was like plan three. And that wasn't the, the most effective or efi- efficient way. And then they're like, well, how are we going to handle future dogs? Like, because we're going to have, we got some canines that are coming up for retirement. I go, uh, what do you, what do you guys think I'm going to say? And they said, develop a plan, come up with you with a, with a rotation plan and how we're going to handle that. I said, bingo. So I, having them do that stuff, that decentralized command component and letting them run with it. Uh, we just did this with our weight room. We redesigned our, I had a, a corporal come to me and say, Hey boss, I want to redo the weight or redo the weight room. And that's been my, that's been my baby for years. I, you know, that's, I've taken care of it, gotten good equipment back there. So for me, that's real personal. And so I gave him a budget and I gave him, I gave him some guidelines and he, he redesigned it. He moved everything, got the walls painted. It looks great back there. It's awesome. Wasn't exactly what I would do. It was about 85% of what I would do. But I let that other 15% go because if I cram that other 15% down his throat, then whose plan does it become? Mine. And then then it wears his buy-in and that I go like, well, what good is it? She's gonna say come up with a plan, then he's just gonna he's just gonna make it his. And I don't want it to be my plan. I want it to be their plan. But I think that ego gets in the way, and I think sometimes traditions get in the way because that's the way we've always done it gets in the way and traditions are good if they make sense traditions are good if they're effective and efficient because some traditions are no bueno right some traditions are bad some traditions you know, you got to change with the times too. Just because you've done it that way doesn't mean that that's the best way to do it. Well, I use the uh, American Fire helmet as a perfect example of that. You know, we we'll get told, "Oh, it's tradition." No, it's not. It's a hat. That's not tradition. Yeah. Tradition is courage. Tradition is brotherhood. Tradition is owning your fitness, owning your training. Um, you know, compassion, kindness. Those are traditions in the fire service. That's, yeah. that's a hat, and it's a hat that was invented in the early last century and you don't see the SWAT guys, you know, wearing a tin helmet. They have the latest and greatest. So I see that, you know, that's a, that's yeah. a scapegoat for that the whole analogy for me, whether it's mental health, whether it's all those things, that's not tradition. So even understanding the word tradition and truly separating that from you hanging on to an iconic piece of clothing because you want to look like Kurt Russell is not tradition. That's ego. Sure. Yeah, no, and and understanding that too and, and looking at it going, I always ask the why, like why are we doing it this way? Why are we 
why are we training this way? Why do we have this holster? And like we've changed holsters three or four times since uh, since I've been at the department. And you know, you, people get married to an idea, and it becomes that their idea. And then if it's, I, I think people hang on to things because like, well, that was my my thing. I did that. That's my staple. And if you change it, then that's taken my staple away from it. It's like, well, it, not necessarily because you helped get us to that level. And now we're going to the next level. My goal when I retire from here is just to leave this place better than I found it. Right. To make sure that, that it's, it's set up for the future. I don't ever want us to go outside again for a chief of police. I want guys inside this department to, to, to be the next chief and to give them the tools that they need to be successful here. I, I think that's another problem too, like with first responders or with any, or with any leadership position is you get information and you hold that information tight to your chest, right? That's like me, like, you know, having a, you know, going down to FTX with Jocko and spending some time talking to him and not sharing any of that information that I learned down there. It's like, cause I think that if I share it, then it makes me less needed. I want a replacement. So, and I think that that's, I think that that's a fear that a lot of us, a lot of, of, of leaders have, but if my people are great, that means that makes me look better. Right. I mean, so I, I think, I think that that's a, a, a common fear that, that people have. And it's just, you know, I, I just look at things and go, you know, okay, how I, I dumb it down in my head and I go, how is this cover move? How is this simple? How is this prioritize and execute? And how is this decentralized command? And the thing is, especially now, like we've, with all these different struggles of going on, and one of the things that I really learned at FTX is that detachment is a superpower. And if you have the ability, when people are like screaming mad, and it, as a leader, if you can detach from that situation, you are going to come across as, you know, looking like you're the smartest one in the room and providing uh, some different perspective on things. Because if you get involved, if you get in the weeds and get in that argument with someone and get sucked into the threat, then you're just going down that rabbit hole. And it, the, the detachment component, and what I mean by that is being able to to not get in the weeds of a situation of looking at things from altitude, from the bigger perspective, thinking strategically. Um, and that's really helped me out, um, especially with a lot of different situations that we've had here in, in our community as, as they've unfolded and my ability to be able to communicate with different groups and, you know, look at things from their perspective. We have a really good relationship with our local NAACP branch here. Um, we do, we, they actually invited us to come. We have a big giant barbecue. And so, um, they called us up and actually invited us to barbecue at the Juneteenth event. And, and here we were with, with members of our community, we're cooking hamburgers and hot dogs, you know, with our community. And, and it's all because, you know, the ability to be able to communicate, detach from things, have good, good, meaningful conversations with people, listen to their perspective we're using that same barbecue we're cooking for the Idaho State University football players tomorrow. We're, you know, members of the police department get their flipping burgers for them. So, but that goes back to the original thing that I talked about. 
building relationships and and but in order to do that you have to be humble you you can't you got to check that ego at the door and and well why are we doing this well first of all um you know it builds relationships with people it gets them to see us in shorts and a t-shirt and understand that you know we we're just you know we're people right and and it gets them to see us from a different perspective to go uh, and here's here's one of the things that uh, with our with our vision statement that and our our values that we have here it's like when I see I tell all the people that work here whether you're a sworn officer or dispatcher records clerk stenographer no matter where you're at in the department I don't want you to when you're out in the community I don't want people to say hey there's a member of the police department I want them to say that's my member of the police department. And take that ownership with us and we take that ownership with them. And if they do that, if they have that, if we have that ownership with our community, you know, it's going to prevent thing, bad things from happening when they and when bad things do. When you build that leadership capital with your community, when things do happen, it'll you, you have, might have to spend some of that capital. And maybe that's explaining why you had to use deadly force. And then they understand, but they know. They've got that relationship with you to go, okay, I'm going to listen to what the chief has to say rather than going to the extreme and going, hey, we're going out in the street and we're going to, you know, burn things down. Absolutely. Well, it's such a powerful perspective. So thank you so much for, you know, for everything that you've kind of talked about today, because it, it takes these these theories, these, you know, these principles that we hear from some of the, the Echelon Front people that have been on here from Jamie to Jocko. Um, but, you know, an application that's actually succeeded, you know, is really, really powerful to hear. I wanted to switch to some um, closing questions very quickly if you've got time. Sure, 100%. Beautiful. All right. Well, the first question, I'm, I'm anticipating the answer already. Is there a book or books that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely unrelated. Yeah, extreme ownership, right? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Number one book, you know. And out of extreme ownership, I'm a big fan of page 238, which talks about being unified in your purpose and cause and and coming together as, as a team. Um, you know, after that, uh, I would, you know, I, I would follow the, the, the trilogy this way. I'd follow dichotomy because that, that teaches you how to balance things out. Some people would jump into leadership strategy tactics. If you're talented, I'd read both at the same time. Um, but, you know, that dichotomy teaches you how to. To, to break things down and then leadership strategy and tactics is just full of gold, right? It's full of all kinds of good things. Like, like recently I've been using don't care, right? Hey, the, the city's doing this. Don't care, right? Someone so said this about you. Don't care, right? Learn not to sweat small things. Um, yeah. So those would be the three books right there. Beautiful. What about a documentary or a movie that you love? You know, I, there's a, well, of course, I'm I'm a, I'm a probably favorite movies Big Trouble in Little China, the original Die Hard. Yeah, uh, I made my kids all watch Big Trouble in Little China. Um, I think that's mandatory watching for anyone from the '80s uh, for their kids to watch. Uh, but documentary, I really like the documentaries that are uh, on the History Channel by about George Washington. I think that when you look at you know. Uh, examples of, of resiliency and where he learned from his mistakes. I think there's like a three or four part series. It's on the history channel about George Washington. And, um, 
one of my leadership instructors from Quantico, uh, Colonel John Forker, really dives deep into George Washington and and the things that he did and the resiliency that he had to overcome and the things that he did at Valley Forge that really turned turned things around and that him staying with his troops and how he led from the front, led by example. Even though he could have gone home, he didn't. He stayed there with it with his troops. So I think that that's a, I lo- I like that documentary a lot. Beautiful. All right. Well, next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, you know, I would I would recommend a guy by the name of Kevin Holtry. Uh, Kevin, Kevin is a guy I look up to. Um, uh, he was uh, an officer. He's an officer over in Boise Police Department. Kevin was shot in the line of duty five times. Um, he's in a wheelchair. He lost uh, his left leg below the knee, and the dude is a warrior. He 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 wakes up every morning. He had to re- relearn how to live his life, and every time I start to drag a little ass, I think about Kevin, and I I you know like Kevin, you know he's he's getting up every day and he's getting after it, and um, you know of course you know I I recommend that if you get like Jocko or Leif on you know absolutely JP any of those guys are going to be gold but um but Kevin would be a guy I could probably connect you with him to to get on and and talk about his story and and where he uh, where he's at and the things that he's had to overcome uh, so he he would be he'd be a guy that I, I'd recommend beautiful yeah thank you I've actually got a um a police officer that lost his leg after being hit helping on a traffic accident and um, he actually returned to work with prosthesis so you know another powerful law enforcement story um, alright well then the last question before we make sure people know how to find you what do you do to decompress uh, work out I, I'm a workout junkie um, uh, you know and then uh, I'll I'll read you know um, whether it's scriptures or whether it's you know some of the I go back if I got a if I got a leadership problem right um, I go back to the books or you know I, I you know I pray about it I, I'm a person of faith that I think is a very I think it's very important for first responders to have that foundation and have that um, have a higher belief in their in their life of you know that know that life there's more life than this because we often ask ourselves why did this happen to this good person or why, why am I dealing with this? So have a higher belief in something. So I, I do that to decompress and I go out and serve. I think that going out and serving is a great way to decompress. Um, I'll be at the Greek food festival serving food uh, on Saturday to members of our community. I think by going out and serving others, it gives you a different perspective to think when your life's crappy, right? Well, you know what? I wouldn't want to be in Afghanistan right now. And, you know, to look at things from a different perspective and you get that when you serve. Absolutely. And it's very healing as well from a mental health point of view, I think. 100%. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. then if people want to reach out to you, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of leaders, whether, you know, whatever rank they are that are, you know, fascinated by the success you have, probably the application of, of Echelon Front's work in, in your department. Where are the best places to find you online? Well, I, I have LinkedIn. And I have LinkedIn. I don't, <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have Facebook. I don't have Twitter. I don't, I'm not on Instagram um, or email me. They go on the department's website. My, my, my work email, rshy at pocatillo.us is on there. 
Um, you know, I have some answers. I don't have all the answers. I'll never pretend that I do have all the answers. Uh, I'll, I, you know, I'll help people out, give them a way. Um, I'll, you know, and I'll learn things from others too. And, you know, uh, my, my biggest advice to, to leaders getting into law enforcement is don't reinvent the wheel. All right. There's people out there that can help you and mentors out there that can, that can help guide and direct you through that and make sure that you're, you know, take care of your people, um, you know, and, and take care of your communities, whether, you know, in any first responders, any leader, you should be doing that. You know, look at, look at ways to give back. We have Idaho central credit union up here. Uh, Kent Orem, who's a great guy, gives back to our community on a daily basis. He donates $3,000 to us a year for our uh, give the cops the bird Turkey fundraiser. So, um, <laughs> I like that name. <laughs> yeah, it's great. We raised 10 grand last year, and 202 turkeys, which meant members of senior staff had to do 202 burpees because we did burpees for turkeys. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we do all kinds of stuff like that all the time. We partner with our, uh, members of our community. So yeah, that, that service is, um, is huge. Beautiful. Well, Roger, I just want to say thank you. It's been such a great conversation and it's refreshing. You know, there's a lot of people on here that are frustrated with where they work. You know, so a lot of people that have retired that, you know, talked about the, the brick walls that were up and even Jocko, when I had him on, he, I asked him about where my last place and, and, you know, even with his, his knowledge, his wisdom, really the answer made me realize that I had to transition out of that particular department. So it's really inspiring to hear from a leader in a department, you know, with the decentralized command. So a lot of people within that department are also, you know, moving the needle. Um, and I, I think it's encouraging. I think it really is for a lot of us that we can, you know, push and force change and create some excellent fire and police departments out there. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. And we're always taking laterals. You know, the biggest, the biggest uh, area we're suffering right now is dispatchers. Man, they're, they are hard to find. So, yeah. All right. If you're listening, there you go. Put in an app. There you go. Put in an app. Get online. <laughs> Get, done. Get after it. 